Wow, what a morning we've had together as we have observed so many wonderful parts of what it means to be a Christian. We participated in the baptism of our brothers and sisters as they gave public testimony to the fact that they have been redeemed by the mercy that we've been singing about this morning. We celebrated together and agreed willingly and joyfully to enter into a covenant relationship with these who have joined our body today. And it is a covenant relationship that is made possible by that mercy. And then we observed and partook at a table that makes all of it possible. And so, what, what a wonderful thing we've had to do. One time, enemies of God at war with God have been reconciled to him and to each other. You know, we really witnessed something this morning that is of cosmic magnitude. Wicked sinners, haters of God, sin tasters, living under the curse, have been forgiven, have been adopted as children of God, have become fervent lovers and faithful followers of Jesus. And all of God's people said what? Amen. And I hope that's you. But if you really stop and think about it, there's something about all that should bother you. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? I, I'm not bothered by this. I'm, I'm thankful for this. I'm, I'm celebrating what we did today. I, I get it. I am too. But there's something, if you stop and think about it, that ought to bother you. <clears throat> because it's what bothered Jonah. We're in our series on Jonah, and we're going to take a little break from the normal way. We would look at that book paragraph by paragraph, and we're going to go to the bottom of the ocean where we find a man, a, 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 a a sin-drenched, soul-dying prophet of God who's desperately struggling with the fact that God decided to show mercy to people that don't deserve it. I mean, if we could frame it up the way that Jonah was thinking about this, and this is my own framework, and maybe you'd have a better way of doing it, but it's like Jonah looks over there and says, so that's it? I mean, you're, you're just, I mean, here's a group of people, and when I get there, I know exactly what they're going to do. They're going to do what, what I wish your people would do. They're going to tell you they're sorry. They're going to feel bad about their sin. They're going to tell you they're sorry. They're going to, like, repent of it, and then you're going to throw them a boatload of mercy. And that's not just. And if you stop and think about it, before we kind of just beat up on Jonah for asking that question, that's actually really a good question. You could almost say it this way, so are you, are you really telling me that these people who've been at enmity with God, who have been committing crimes against him, because that's what sin is. Sin is a cosmic crime. When, when you say to somebody, are you a sinner? Everybody's like, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. We actually have ways we talk about this, right? Well, after all, we're only human. Everybody makes what? Mistakes. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is a crime. And it's a crime against God. And it's an, it is a crime of inordinate magnitude. And so Jonah is looking at this, and, and frankly, we should be too, and going, so these people are just going to tell you they're sorry. They got up one day, and, and they started feeling bad about being bad, and so they came to you and they said, I'm sorry for what I did, I'm not going to do it anymore, and I want you to forgive me, and you just dumped a boatload of mercy on that? 
That's all. They're, they're just getting mercy. That's what they're getting. Just mercy. They ought to be getting a lot more than mercy. They ought to be getting wrath. They ought to be getting judgment. Where's the justice in all of this? When you give them just mercy, how can it be just mercy? How is that just? And so, God said, well, Jonah, I'm going to answer that question for you, but I've got a special place where I need to put you so you're ready to hear it. And so he puts Jonah inside a great fish and sends him to the bottom of the ocean. And in the dark, when he's out of hope and he's out of air and he's almost out of life, Jonah gets it. And, and ironically, the very mercy that he's so frustrated with God over that he wants to give the Ninevites is a mercy that he is desperate for when he's at the bottom of the ocean in the dark in the belly of a great fish, out of air, out of hope, and almost out of light. You ever feel that way? You ever been where, where you're in, you feel like, man, I'm, I'm out of air, I'm out of hope, I can't see light anywhere around me, and frankly, I feel like I'm almost out of life. And God put an answer in Jonah's mouth that came out of his heart, and this was the answer. Salvation is of the Lord. That phrase shows up three times in our Bible. It shows up in Jonah 2.9. It shows up again in Psalm 3.8. It shows up in a magnificent passage in Revelation 7. So what does this actually mean? What is Jonah talking about when he says salvation is of the Lord? Well, let me, let me just see if we can't unpack that briefly this morning around the theme of what we've observed, the immense mercy of God that we celebrated that came into the life of those who were baptized, the immense mercy to us as a church that God would bring these people and make them a part of our body and the immense mercy that we all receive uh, from the Lord because of the body that he was willing to break on our behalf. So what does Jonah mean? Well, I think one of the things Jonah means is this, salvation is of the Lord. God is the source of salvation. Jonah's without help, he's without hope, he has no possible way to deliver himself. I mean, what are you going to do when you're at the bottom of an ocean in the belly of a fish and it's dark and you have no resources? It's like, man, where's the oar? Uh, you left it up on the boat, Jonah. Where's that harpoon? I need, I need something to prod this fish with. I mean, you don't, probably don't even have your sandals. You probably lost them on the way down somewhere. So here he is in the dark, without hope. He is completely helpless. In other words, he's blind, and he's dead. And he needs somebody to deliver him. And Jonah instinctively knew something. There's only one person who can deliver me from this. There's only one person in the universe who's strong enough and powerful enough and who knows that I'm down here, and, and, and he's the only one I can turn to. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the only source of salvation. And he's that source because he planned it before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. Let me just read some scripture to us this morning to make that case. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, this is what Paul said to the Ephesians about this very thing. He chose us in him. In other words, he, God, chose us in Christ. When did he make that choice? Before the foundations 
of the world. In 1 Peter 1, verse 20, talking about Jesus and how he was going to make this deliverance possible, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, there are people who will not be in heaven because their names were not written down before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. God is the source of salvation because he planned it before the foundations of the world were ever laid. He designed it according to the counsel of his inscrutable wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. What was that plan? To unite all things in him, in heaven and on earth. He planned it, he designed it. He orchestrates it by his marvelous provision. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus accomplished this. He's the one who made the purification. This is brought up again in Hebrews 9. He, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy place by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. Jesus orchestrated, and God enables it by his gracious means. You know how God enables this? This is amazing to me. He enlivens our dead hearts. In Ephesians chapter 2 God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You were in the dark. You were also dead. And God did something. God enlivened you. If you have an old King James Bible in your hand, the word quickened is the word. It means to enliven, to make alive. And that's what God did. You had no ability even to respond to the gracious offer of the gospel until God first did something in you. God had to enliven you, and he did. And then he enlightened you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's not just that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were blind to the beauty of the gospel. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's not just that unbelievers are dead, and it's not just that they're hard, they're blind, so they can't see. This is the text. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I mean, you can talk to a blind person all you want, but until something happens so that their eyes are enlightened, they will never see what you're seeing. They will never understand. They will never understand and see the beauty of the gospel that is so precious to you. And God said in verse 6, let light shine out of darkness. The God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. There's, there's no better explanation of this or illustration of this rather than Jesus on his way up to the very northern part of Israel to a town called Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, 
The disciples are walking with him. So envision in your mind this group of men. They all look the same. They're all wearing the customary garb of the day. They're, they're sweating from the journey. There's dust on their feet from the road. And they're having an animated conversation. And as they're talking, Jesus turns around to them and he says, I have a question for you. And Peter's like, yeah, 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 what do you want to know? And Jesus says, well, I want to know this. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am. That little title, Son of Man, is talking about that massive massive vision in Daniel chapter 7 where somebody appears before the ancient of days and receives a kingdom and glory and dominion and power. And that person has a title, and his title is the Son of Man. And so Jesus is looking at Matthew, or sorry, at Peter in the Gospel of Matthew, and he's saying to Peter, so with regard to my identity as that ancient of days Son of Man person, who do people say I am? And Peter said, well, to be honest... There's a lot of people that are thinking a lot of things about you. Some people think that you're a great teacher, and and you really are a great teacher. Some people are are impressed that you are uh, like a prophet. They think you're a prophet. And some people even think you're Elijah, the forerunner. Some people think you're Elijah. And, And there's some people that have even come to the conclusion that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead with his head glued back on. That's what people are thinking about you. But nobody, nobody is thinking about you as that person, the Son of Man. That's the implication of Peter's answer. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, well, Peter, who, who, do, you, who do you all think I am? And the answer is stunning, isn't it? Peter says, we, we know who you are. We know that you are the Christ. We know that you're that person. And more than that, we know that you are the son of the living God. You didn't talk this way in first century Israel. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't get this because of human logic. You didn't get this because you just thought about it for a long time and you started connecting dots and ding, 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 ding. Oh, boom, son of man. That's not how you got this. And by the way, that's not how you got it either. You got it the same way Peter got it. I got it the same way Peter got it. You know how Peter got it? This is what Jesus said. My father revealed it to you. The God who caused light to shine at the beginning caused light to shine in your heart so that you could see that this person named Jesus is this magnificent person that you meet in Daniel chapter 7. And even beyond that, that he is the second member of the Trinity who became incarnated to bring salvation. God is the source of all of that. He enlivened you, he enlightened you, and then he enabled you. He enabled you by giving you two indispensable gifts. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first gift that he gave you was faith. God gave you faith. Listen to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this, and the word this is a reference back to faith. The faith that saved you, this faith was not your own doing. It was the gift of God. And then he grants repentance to you so that your sins 
could be forgiven. He granted you the kind of repentance that leads to life. Listen to Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Jonah was right. Salvation is of the Lord. We don't work for it. Titus chapter three, we know this verse, right? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us, but according to his own mercy. We don't work for our salvation. We don't partner with God in our salvation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. We simply receive it. You say, what's my part? I receive it by his amazing grace because of his immeasurable love, and he gives me the faith, and he grants me the repentance. Salvation is of the Lord. There's a second thing in that wonderful text. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not just that God is the source of salvation. He's sovereign over it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah didn't have an issue with God's ability to save and deliver. He took issue with who God wanted to save and when God wanted to save them, and where and how God wanted to save them. And Jonah had to learn something. God grants salvation to whoever he wills. He grants it where and when he wills, and by what means or what agency he chooses. In this case, in Jonah's case, he decided to show mercy to Assyrians at a particular time in their history, at a particular place in the city of Nineveh, and by a particular agent, a Hebrew prophet named Jonah. And he didn't consult Jonah in any of this. It's not like God said to Jonah, hey, Jonah, you're my my main prophet during this period of time, and so I got something we need to talk about. I got a collaborative project that I want to visit with you on. I'm thinking about, well, I know you're going to be ticked about this, and I know this is going to bother you, so, so get your prophet robe out of a wad and sit down and just listen and hear me out. I want to show mercy to these people that you're going to really be ticked about, but I want to show mercy to the Assyrians, and so what do you think? God didn't do that. God shows up in Jonah 1 and says, Jonah, up, go, cry out to the Ninevites. Because their sin has come up against me. There was no collaboration on Jonah's part in this. He didn't consult Jonah. And God doesn't consult us either. When he decides to show and grant salvation to the worst and to the most immoral of sinners like the Ninevites. Or when he grants that same salvation and that uh, that same mercy to a self-righteous, Torah-keeping Pharisee named Saul. It doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on. You can be a pagan idolater, a Ninevite, steeped in your idolatry, or you can be a self-righteous Pharisee, and God decides when and how he wants to show mercy. And by the way, he showed it to you. He showed it to me. And what's amazing to me is that before any of these people, the Ninevites or Saul or even we ourselves choose him, God chose them. And there are three texts that support this. Listen to what the Gospel of John says in chapter 6. No one, Jesus said, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then in Matthew chapter 16, what we just said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is the source of our salvation, and He's also sovereign over it. And then he's bountiful with it. That's the third thing that we see here. Salvation is from the Lord. His atoning sacrifice is sufficient for all. When God sent his son, one greater than Jonah, into the world, he didn't send that son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said this to Timothy 4, to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. His atoning sacrifice is sufficient for all. His wonderful salvation is efficient for those that he foreknew. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, And then his gracious invitation is extended to all. He will save all who call upon him and who repent of their sins and exercise faith. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your creed is. It doesn't matter what your deeds have been. It doesn't matter what your social standing has been. It doesn't matter what your religious status is. God is not a respecter of uh, persons He will save anybody who comes. His gracious invitation is extended to all. Listen to Romans chapter 10. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Why? Because there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches, that's an idea of His mercy here, bestowing His mercy on all who call on Him. And here's the verse that you know, for everyone who calls, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one is prohibited from coming to Christ. So who can do that? Anyone who wants to, regardless of creed, regardless of their moral status or their, immoral, or their immoral deeds or their social status or their religious standing, the Scripture announces, whosoever will may come. This is what Revelation twenty two seventeen says, whosoever will may come and drink freely of the water of life. But what happens when they come? This is what happens. God will save them when they turn from their sin in repentance and put their trust on him. The scripture states that God is not willing that any should perish. This is what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a stunning truth. We don't do anything to receive salvation. How do we respond when we're dead? We can't understand the nature of that salvation. We can't see its beauty. Why? Because we're blind 
And dead people and blind people cannot respond. And the reason we're dead is because we are sinners. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death, is condemnation. And the reason that we're blind and that we willfully give ourselves to that, Paul says in the the book of Romans, you are sold under sin. In in Romans chapter 1, you don't just sin, you give hearty approval to the things that displease God as an unbeliever. And you, dead in your sins, are also blind. The God of this world has blinded you so that you cannot see. It's like, man, if I could just tell them a better story, if I could just paint a better picture, if I could just show them more. And and, and Paul's literally saying, look, you can do all that you want, but you cannot help a blind person see. If you have somebody that is blind from birth and you try to explain to them what the color green is like, you're going to have a really hard time. Well, let me see if I can try. Well, the color green, well, number one, it's my favorite color. It really is my favorite color. It's my favorite color, and, uh, and it's, it's the most awesome color. And here's this blind person going, okay. It's, it's on the stoplights. It's like, you know, it's, on, it's one of the three lights. It's like green means go. Okay, great. You still haven't helped me understand green. Well, it's a primary color, and if you, like, mix this color and that color, you come up with green. What's a primary color? I've never seen one. Okay, think of, the, think of it like this. Can you think of grass? Grass is green. That's the color of green. And pretty soon you're going to exhaust yourself because a blind person has no capacity to understand. They can hear everything you're saying. They can put all the words together. The sentences all make sense, but they have no capacity to understand green because they've never seen it. A lost person has no capacity to understand the beauty of the gospel in Jesus. I mean, think about it. Think about the immensity of all of this. Here's the fourth thing that we see in this text. It's not just that God is the source of it, and he's not just sovereign over it, and he's not just bountiful with it. He is satisfied in it. Salvation is by the Lord. Salvation from the Lord forgives every sin. It cleanses every stain. It converts the sinner. It transforms the soul. It confirms the saint. When God saved us, he saved us to the uttermost. This is what Hebrews 7 says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He also sustains and sanctifies us. He didn't just save us completely, but he's completely sanctifying us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you thoroughly, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless to the coming of the Lord. Now, how could God do this? I mean, Pastor Sam, I hear everything you're saying. God is the source of it. He's sovereign over it. He's bountiful with it. He's satisfied. And I don't understand how he can just give mercy like that. And the answer is because of two things Jesus did. Thing number one, when Jesus came, he met the righteous demands of the law, perfectly. Theologians call this the active obedience of Jesus. That just means that for his entire life, Jesus lived under the law. This is what Paul said in the book of Galatians. When when the fullness of time came, when the right moment in time and history came, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, under the law. In other words, he came 
in, he lived under the righteous demands of the law and he fulfilled every one of those demands and he did it in every conceivable way at all times. And God said, that obedience that satisfied my righteous law is the obedience that I'm going to credit to you. This is why your obedience, as, 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 as important as it is, is, is an expression of your love for God. It's not some way in which you earn God's favor. Your obedience is not the obedience that you're, you're clothed in. Your obedience is not how you're standing before God. And God looks at you and says, accept it. He looks at you on the basis of somebody else's obedience. And that obedience was the obedience that Christ earned for you when he lived in perfect obedience to the law, something you and I could never do. And all of that obedience was credited to my account, and it was credited to your account. This is Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. And then in Romans chapter 3, we learn something else. It's not just that Christ completely fulfilled and perfectly obeyed the law for us, he also fully satisfied the penalty of sin that was upon us. When we stood before God as condemned sinners, we received a death sentence. The wages of sin is death, it's condemnation. You say, I've never met anybody that's ever been on death row. You actually have, you're it. You were on the worst possible death row in the universe. You were on God's death row. God gave you a death sentence for your sin and somebody came and took that penalty for you. When you look at the cross and you see its brutality, and you see the awfulness of what happened on that cross, you need to understand something. The person on that cross didn't deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. And that person was the second member of the Trinity. When God decided to make me safe from his wrath, He sent his own son to do it. So Jesus obeyed perfectly on my behalf, and then he paid the penalty that was mine to pay. The theologians call this the substitutionary penal atonement. And simply, just a very fancy way of saying this, Jesus took your place. He went to that cross that you should have gone to and that I should have gone to. And this explains a massive thing. The law was kept Justice was served, and mercy can flow. The law was kept, justice was served, and mercy can flow. And God did all of that. I didn't do any of that. Salvation is for me, but it is not by me. Not one part of it. God did everything that needs to happen for me to receive mercy. He enlivened my dead heart. He enlightened my blind eyes. He enabled me to respond by giving me faith. He granted me repentance. God did everything that is necessary for me to be saved. You say, well, what do do you have to do? Well, I just have to receive it. I have to call on the name of the Lord. And, you know, if you're like me, you know, I'm I'm sitting here trying to understand all of this and I can't wrap my head around this. I'm not sure how I should feel about all this. And this is what Paul had to say. 
about all this. Listen to Paul instruct us about how we're to think and how we're to feel about all this. Romans chapter 11 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his decisions. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? God, I don't think you should do it that way. I think there might be, could we tweak it just a little bit? I think it could be better if we did it. God doesn't ask us our opinion on how to save people. He is the master at it. He doesn't need our opinion. He doesn't need our counsel. And he certainly doesn't need our help. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And here's how Paul said we should feel. To him be glory forever. And that's the final thing as we close God is glorified through salvation. To him be glory forever. At the end of our Bible, we are transported to a scene in heaven. This is in Revelation chapter 7. And when we get there with John, we're sort of watching through John's eyes, and we see seated on a throne, the Ancient of Days, and next to him is the Lord Jesus Christ the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And around that throne are 24 thrones, and there are elders sitting on that throne representing all the redeemed people of God from both the Old and the New Testaments. And standing before this scene are an innumerable, unnumbered multitude, a great throng of people as far as the eye can see. Millions upon millions upon millions of people are gathered there in that great scene, and they're all wearing blazing white robes that were given to them by the one who is sitting next to God on the throne. And here's what they, here's what they say. John said, I looked, I beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And while we're just watching this, John says, Hey, hey, look over there. There's Adam and there's Eve. They're they're shouting. Oh, and look over there. There's David. And who's that next to him? I think that's Uriah the Hittite. And then we just pan over and there is this massive throng of Ninevites standing there. And John's like, who's that in the middle? Who's that guy in the middle that's jumping up and down? And he's got his arm around these Ninevites and his tears are just streaming down his face and he's going, I said it a long time ago. Salvation is of the Lord. It's Jonah. And here's the question I have for you this morning. Will your voice be in that throne? And if it is, it's because God did it. It's because God quickened your heart. It's because God opened your eyes. Like he did Jonah's at the bottom of the ocean. And you are going to say with your heart and with your lungs, salvation, the salvation I have, the reason I'm here in this mighty throng is because of the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb of God who is slain 
before the foundations of the earth. What a marvelous text. What a marvelous gospel. You say, well, Pastor, what do I, what do I have to do? You have to call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? It's, it's way more than just verbalizing. It's may, way more than just having this mental ascent. It means that you repent of your sins. It means that you turn away from anything or anyone that you are looking to for spiritual satisfaction or eternal salvation. It means that you turn to God and you trust fully and wholeheartedly for the salvation He has provided you instead of the one you're trying to make with your own little version of good works or your own little cleanup act. You, you turn to God and you receive the salvation He has prepared for you. And then you commit your whole life to Him without reservation. You identify with Him unashamedly. You follow Him decisively and you persevere in obedience. When all other means have failed you, when all other persons have failed, when all other idols have failed, when all of your own power has failed you, when you're all out of hope, I want you to remember something. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over judgment because of Jesus. And here's what Jesus said to you. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Are you just worn out with your sins? Jesus said, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, I am lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. When you come to Jesus like this, you know what you get? Just mercy. Boatloads of it. Just mercy. But don't ever forget for a minute that the mercy that you get is also a just mercy. And it's just because of what Jesus did not because of what you did. Let's bow our heads, would you? You know, we don't often talk about the gospel in this way. This is reflected in our doctrinal statement. It's reflected in the text of the New Testament. It could almost be offensive, couldn't it, that we can't do anything to be saved? Are you kidding? I got to do something. I got to do something. I got I to clean up. I got No, no, no. You don't have to do anything. In fact, you can't do anything because God has done it all. He designed it. He accomplished it. He is so bountiful with it. And then he opened your eyes so that you could see your need for it and you could see the un- and understand the beauty of it. He quickened your heart so you could respond to it and then he granted you faith so you could believe. He granted you repentance so you could turn from your sins. And if you're here today and you're saying, I don't know if any of that's true of me, but I wish it were, then God is calling you today. That's the call of God. God is not a respecter person. Why would God call me? I don't know any more than I would know why he called me. But if he's calling you, all I can say is this, come, come to Jesus. If he's, if he's helping you to see your sin, if he's helping you to see the answer to your sin, if he's drawing your heart and you're going, God, I want that, I want that salvation, then just cry out to him and say, God, I want to be saved today. You say, well, I don't know, I don't know any theological words. That's okay, God understands little words. Use little words. Like, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm like Jonah. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the bottom of the ocean. I'm out of, I'm out of hope. God, would you 
Deliver me. Would you save me from my sins? And God says, done. Mercy. And if you're here and you've received that mercy, don't ever forget it. And take that mercy everywhere. Share it with everyone. Every person on your block, every person in your, at your work, everybody needs to hear of this amazing salvation that God has done.